Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Let's uh, pray this morning before we uh, get into God's Word as well. So why don't we pray? Lord, uh, we rejoice in another day that you've given us. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we're going to choose joy. Lord, despite the circumstances of life, uh, we can choose joy because our joy is not found in circumstances, but it's found in you. And Lord, we rejoice that the the gift of life of uh, these uh, new ones that have been born, and we celebrate and uh, give them to you and rejoice with these families. Uh, Lord, now we pray that you would open up our eyes and minds to your word today, and may uh, we leave here uh, encouraged and changed because your um, word has spoken to us. And so we thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have been looking at the book of Joshua, and we've been in Joshua for probably about six weeks, taking about a, a chapter a, a week. And so let me just kind of remind us where we're at in the book of Joshua, a little bit of context here, and then we'll jump into uh, our passage here in Joshua chapter 6. So I remember Joshua is a transition book because uh, Moses has been the leader of Israel for 40 years, and now uh, we find out that Moses has died. Uh, I remember the saying, when a man of God dies, nothing of God dies, and we need to remember that. When our spiritual giants pass away, when spiritual giants die, nothing of God dies. And God raises up new leaders, and God raised up a new leader. His name was Joshua, and that's where the book begins. Joshua now is with the nation of Israel. They're camped at the uh, edge of the Jordan River just about ready to cross over and finally go into the promised land that God had given to them. And uh, we know as we looked, uh, the, the Jordan River's at flood stage, and there's two million Israelites that need to cross the Jordan River, and God does a miracle, and he stops the flow of the Jordan River, and two million Israelites cross on dry ground. And God works a miracle, and finally, the Israelites are in the promised land. God instructed that the the men of Israel, one from each tribe, would take a, a rock from the middle of that Jordan River where the Ark of the Covenant stood to, uh, during the, the passing through the Jordan River, and they carried it all the way to a place called Gilgal. Gilgal was about eight miles west of the Jordan River, and there they built a memorial. They built an altar of stones so that God would remind them and they would never forget what God did there at the crossing of the Jordan River. Now, if you were with us last week, we looked at Joshua uh, chapter 5, and Israel took a little pause when they got to Gilgal, and four significant events happened at Gilgal. 
And let me just remind you of them, of these four significant events. Uh, we looked at the first one was circumcision, that all the males that hadn't been circumcised were circumcised, and that is to renew the covenant. That was the sign of the covenant, was circumcision. The second event was the Passover. They observed the Passover. Remember the crossing. God never wanted them to forget the, the passage through the Red Sea. The third significant event was the cessation of manna. For 40 years, God had provided manna uh, for them as food in the wilderness. And now that they're in the land, uh, the manna stopped because they were able to reap the crops of this land that they were now in, a land flowing of milk and honey. And the last significant event was a Christophany. As Joshua goes out from Gilgal and he's beginning to look at Jericho, which was their next venture, their next battle, he meets somebody. It's a man with a sword drawn and he finds out that it is the commander of the Lord's army. We believe this was a a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. And Joshua has a conversation with uh, this uh, commander, Jesus, The commander tells him, uh, take off your shoes, take off your sandals, because where you're standing is holy ground. Well, that brings us to Joshua chapter 6, and probably the most familiar story in the whole book of Joshua, the Battle of Jericho. So this morning, we're going to take a little trip to Jericho. And uh, we're going to save you some airfare because we're going to go by YouTube. And uh, you'll get a look at what Jericho looks like today. One of the most popular uh, places for people to visit in Israel. And um, one of the most excavated places in Israel. And uh, the excavations have verified what the Bible says happened there. Not that we need that. But it's been verified by uh, the excavators there. So this is four minutes long, and let's take a trip to Jericho, and then we'll jump back into uh, the passage here. What's fascinating is those, those stone walls, as they depicted, there was some red brick walls then above that. And it says when the, when the walls collapsed, they collapsed outward, those red bricks outward, and it made like a ramp so that the Israelites could just go right in and, and conquer Jericho uh, when the walls fell down. So uh, fascinating to kind of get that mental picture in your mind of uh, what happened here in Joshua chapter 6. Well, let's, let's look at our outline and then we'll look at some application truths this morning as we uh, share together from uh, Joshua chapter 6. So let's look at the message, uh, the message to Joshua. And when we pick it up here, this is really a continuation of the end of chapter 5, when Joshua had this encounter with the commander of the Lord's army, Christ himself. And so let's begin reading in verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Jericho was on lockdown. It was probably viewed as the most secure city in, in Canaan, and they were on lockdown. We know a little bit about lockdown, don't we, from our last uh, couple years. No one's coming out. No one's going in. But I can imagine that there was fear in the lives of those living in Jericho. In fact, we know that be from Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, when uh, the Canaanites began to hear about what God had done. Uh, it says their hearts melted. They were afraid. 
they probably would have also been afraid. And, and I remember coming to this realization a, a number of years ago, thinking about Jericho. Jericho was not a very large city. Jericho was on about 10 acres of land. And so Jericho would very easily fit on our church property. We have about 17 acres here. It would not have taken long to walk around the walls of Jericho. Jericho was also not a very populated city. I mean, there was maybe three or 4,000 people in Jericho. Can you imagine what it would have been like for those people to look out and see two million Israelites out there? And so fear had gripped the hearts of those living in, in Jericho. And uh, here's the message that uh, the Lord gives to Joshua, uh, verse 2. God says to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Notice the, the tense of the verb there. Now, the battle hasn't taken place yet, but God says to Joshua, I've delivered Jericho into your hands. I've delivered the king. I've delivered the fighting men. I've already won the victory. Past tense. Some commentators refer to the tense of the verb as prophetic perfect. God says to Joshua, Jesus says to Joshua, the victory has already been won. Now they had to give Joshua great confidence as they're about to uh, embark on battle number one as they enter the promised land. So I've already given you the victory, Joshua. And uh, here's the method, verses 3 through 16. We're not going to read this whole passage because we know this story. And so you know the method that Josh, God says to Joshua, I want um, the Ark of the Covenant to go around the city. I want seven priests with Seven ram's horns. We got a ram's horn on the front of the communion table, if you can see it. Um, a ram's horn from Israel. That's what they were carrying and blowing. And I want the army to, to march around once a day for six days. Day number seven, I want you to march around seven times. And then I want you to shout, and I want you to blow the trumpets, and the walls are going to come tumbling down. That was the method. Now, that sounds kind of familiar to us because we know this story. It had to sound very, very strange to Joshua. <laughs> you know, he's hearing, that's how we're going to do this, Lord? Uh, but Joshua had already experienced um, God at work in some unusual ways. Joshua had already seen and, and experienced the crossing of the Red Sea and God's miraculous power. God, Joshua had already seen God's provision of manna for 40 years and their clothes not wearing out and their feet not swelling. Joshua had just recently seen God work a miracle in opening up the Jordan River for two million Israelites to cross. And so uh, Joshua's already seen what God has done. And so by faith, he believes. In fact, uh, Hebrews 11.30 says, By faith, the walls of Jericho came down. And it was the faith of Joshua, the faith of the leaders, the faith of the people who uh, believed God. What is faith? Faith is taking God at his word and acting on it. 
And so uh, those are the instructions. And so in verse 6, Joshua passes the instructions on to the priests. In verse 7, he passes the, the instructions on to the Israelite army. In verse 8, he passes on the instructions to all the people. And so let's pick up the narrative then in verse uh, 11. It says, so he had the ark, Joshua had the ark of the Lord, carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So there's the method. It's a strange method. But this was God's plan to to conquer that first battle and that first fortified city of Jericho. Now let's look at the mandate, because God gave a very special mandate, and he only gave it for this first battle. And remember, there were 30 cities in Canaan that they were going to have to conquer. This is city number one of about 30 that they needed to, to conquer. So here's the mandate, verses 17, 18, and 19. We read, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So this was the mandate for for the battle of Jericho. Because normally when you go in and conquer a city, you conquer a land, you're able to enjoy the spoils. You're able to enjoy um, kind of the, the, the leftovers that's left behind. And you would, would take that for yourselves. And God said, I don't want you to take anything. I, I want you to completely destroy this city. Do not take any spoils. Take some of the gold and silver and, and save it for the treasury, for my house. But do not take anything for yourselves. Because this battle is a battle that belongs to the Lord. One commentator writes, In this first victory in Canaan, Jericho was presented to God as the first fruits of the victories to come. A principle we see all through Scripture. Ordinarily, the soldiers shared in the spoils of war, but not at Jericho. Everyone and everything was to be destroyed. And so let's read about the miracle that happened, verses 20 and 21. Here's the fall of Jericho. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted every the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, 
cattle, sheep, and donkeys. There was the miracle. Uh, that wall, when they shouted, uh, that top wall fell downward and the Israelites went in and totally destroyed everything and everyone in that city. Now, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we read about God's instruction to completely destroy everything and everyone. It brings up a question and begins to bother some of us. How could a, a loving God command the Israelite army to kill everyone? That doesn't sound very loving to me. Well, God is also not only a loving God, but God is a holy God. In Genesis chapter 6, he destroyed the, the whole world except for eight people because the wickedness of the world had gotten so bad. God says he, he re- regretted what he had done. And only eight people survived. Let me share with you um, a moody commentary, just a couple paragraphs on this. And by the way, uh, before the universal flood, um, people had 120 years to repent. Noah worked on that ark for 120 years. And, and I'm sure some people came by and, and Noah had a chance to say, uh, to, to preach a message. He, he preached a message just by building the ark. And yet only eight people believed. Here's the Moody commentary on the city of Jericho. The city was to be destroyed and burned. All the people and livestock were to be killed. The people were to be exterminated for their wickedness. Besides their horrific religious practices, including ritual prostitution and child sacrifice, these people were involved in wickedness in their day-to-day lives. If Leviticus 18 reflects Canaanite practices, they were regularly involved in incest, adultery, child sacrifice, sodomy, and bestiality. Thus, the Israelites were commanded to completely destroy them as God's judgment. Well, the city was completely destroyed except for, again, a small group of people. And God saved a remnant in Jericho. You remember this, if you've been with us through the book of Joshua, uh, that we now want to see the mercy shown to Rahab and her family. And so everybody was completely destroyed except for Rahab and those that were related to her that believed God and came into Rahab's house. And you remember uh, back in Joshua chapter 2, after uh, Joshua sent the spies in, they end up at Rahab's house. Rahab becomes a, a believer. She says, I know that your God, Yahweh, is the true God. And they make this agreement, and there's this scarlet cord that's hanging out of uh, of the house there that uh, where Rahab lived. And the agreement was, everybody that's in your house will be safe. Everybody else will be destroyed. And so in Joshua chapter 6, we read, the, the here's the mercy that God showed to, to Rahab. Verse 22, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? These, these would have been familiar faces. She's already met these two individuals. She's already housed them. And now Joshua is saying, you same two men go into Rahab's house, bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. They made this, this agreement, this promise. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father, 
and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her, they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. There's only one family that escaped Jericho, and it was Rahab and her family and her extended family because they believed God. What's interesting, and uh, here Joshua 6 says uh, she lives among the Israelites to this day, is uh, the story of Rahab. The story of Rahab is fascinating because uh, Rahab gets assimilated into the Israelite culture. Rahab actually ends up marrying an Israelite by the name of Salmon. An interesting word, name. Salmon's from the tribe of Judah. Salmon and Rahab have a son by the name of Boaz. Boaz eventually marries Ruth from the book of Ruth. Boaz and Ruth have a son by the name of Obed, who has a son by the name of Jesse, who has a son by the name of David. And so Rahab, the rest of the story is that Rahab, who gets assimilated into the Israelite culture, actually becomes the great, great grandmother of King David. It also puts her in the line of Jesus. And you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and Rahab is found there as, I think, one of only two women that are mentioned in the, that genealogy. So what, a, what an incredible story of God's grace and mercy that Rahab becomes the great-great-grandmother of David and becomes part of the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. Well, that's the story of Jericho, and just in our uh, 10 or 15 minutes we have left here, I'd like us to think about some life lessons from Joshua chapter 6, and there's four of them we're going to look at. Uh, what are some things that we can learn from, from this story, uh, Joshua chapter 6, life lessons? Here's, here's the first one, and this is, this is one I want you to uh, kind of take hold of and take home with this morning if, if you take home nothing else, and it's this. Our victory, our spiritual ultimate victory, has already been won. Uh, we go back to Joshua chapter 6, where verse 2, where Joshua has this encounter with, uh, with God himself, with Jesus, this Christophany. And Jesus tells Joshua, I have delivered Jericho and the king and the armies and the city into your hands. Joshua, the victory's already been won. And so as we think about that in our spiritual lives, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you put your faith and trust in Him and, and His promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, guess what? Our ultimate victory has already been won. Our victory over sin, our victory over Satan, ultimately our victory over death. It was won through what? The finished work of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. 
And like the Israelite army, who on the 13th time around Jericho were commanded to to give a loud shout, to give a loud cry, and then the walls would come down, a victory cry. 2,000 years ago, Jesus on the cross at Calvary gave a shout, a loud shout. It says in Matthew 27:50, when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up the ghost, he gave up his spirit rather. And uh, that loud cry was one Aramaic word. The word is tetelestai. He shouted, it is finished. The sacrifice on the cross, the purchasing of our redemption for our sins. Our victory has already been won. And so Peter, in that sermon on Pentecost Day in Acts chapter 2 there in Jerusalem, in his uh, Pentecostal day sermon, says, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. It was impossible for Jesus to stay in the grave. It was impossible because he's what? The way, the truth, and the life. And three days later, he came alive, and we're going to celebrate that in about six or seven weeks the, on, on Resurrection Day. But what we need to understand is that if you know Jesus, our victory's already been won. And there's so many passages we could read here, and I don't want to read too many of them, but I certainly want to read Romans chapter 8, which is kind of the high point of, of the book of Romans and and uh, the peak of, of Paul's teaching on the, what Christ has done for us. Let me just read a couple of verses from Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? Here's a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? The implied answer is no one. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Or wars. That's my added um, two bits there. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, we could read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, that that um, resurrection chapter where the Apostle Paul talks about uh, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, grave, is your sting? And for the believer, death is victory, isn't it? That uh, a lot of times we refer to, well, they, uh, you know, they lost their battle with this. Well, losing the battle physically means what? Gaining victory spiritually, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so, what we need to realize is that our ultimate victory has been won. Romans eight one. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, we don't fight for victory as Christians, but we fight from victory because Christ has already won the victory through his finished work on the cross. Secondly, life lesson is this. Number two, God often accomplishes his purposes in unusual ways. God often accomplishes. 
what he wants to accomplish in unusual ways. One commentator writes this, whether it is Joshua with trumpets and a shout, or Gideon with torches and pitchers, Judges chapter 7, or shepherd boy David with a sling, God delights in using weakness and seemingly foolishness to defeat his enemies and bring glory to his name. Uh, Who would have come up with this battle plan? None, None of us would have. And God often accomplishes what he wants to accomplish in very unusual ways. And so Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Someone else says, man proposes and God disposes. And we have our plans and we think this is what's going to happen, but God often has a different plan and we simply need to trust and obey. And so God accomplishes his purposes often in very different strange ways. Remember the story in the Old Testament of the, the Syrian king Naaman and he was a, he was a leper and, uh, the uh, the little slave girl was uh, was an Israelite and says, "I know somebody in in Israel that can uh, heal you and help you." And um, Naaman Naaman thought that uh, the prophet would come and just uh, say some magic words and heal him. And the message was, uh, "Hey, I want you to go down to the Jordan River and I want you to dip in the Jordan River six times, and on the seventh time, your leprosy is going to be clean." And King Naaman. Um, didn't like that. And he said, well, hey, that Jordan River is kind of a dirty river and there's some other cleaner rivers that are close by here. Why can't I just go in those rivers? And they finally persuaded him to obey God. And on the seventh time, he came up and his leprosy was gone. Think about our own salvation and and uh, the, the Christmas carol and hymn. What a strange way to save the world. Through a baby born in an obscure village in Bethlehem through two young teenagers uh, by the name of Mary and Joseph. So I don't know what you're waiting on God to do, but oftentimes God is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, and he's going to do it oftentimes in unusual ways. Life lesson number three. God must be at the center of all that we do. God must be at the center of all we do in our lives. Think about the the last few passages and chapters of uh, the book of Joshua that we looked at and uh, the crossing of the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. The Ark of the Covenant played a very key role. The Ark represented what God's presence. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 16 times in Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4. And what were the priests to do as as they carried that ark? They stood right there in the middle of the Jordan River. And as the people passed by on dry ground and saw that miracle happen, they passed right by the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder that God must be at the center of all that we do. And even the victory at Jericho, God included what? The Ark of the Covenant to, to be carried by the priests around the city as a symbol of God's presence. The ark is mentioned six times in Joshua chapter 6. Now, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant today, 
But we do have the Bible, don't we? We have God's Word. And, and God and God's Word must be at the center of all that we do. We must constantly and continually seek God's guidance and direction in all that we do, whether it's our lives, our marriages, our families, our workplace, our church. We need to be seeking God's face and God's direction because He must be at the center of all that we do. We read through First Samuel and Second Samuel and and about King David and a constant phrase there in First Samuel and Second Samuel with King David is that King David inquired the Lord. He was always seeking God's face for wisdom and for direction in his life. In fact, when King Saul was said to be no longer king of Israel, it's because King Saul didn't seek God for wisdom and guidance. And so, God must be at the center of all that we do. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that very familiar verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, what? Acknowledge Him. And what does God promise to do? He will direct your paths. He will guide your paths. And so uh, we must be reminded that God needs to be at the center of all that we do. Lastly, life lesson number four is this, that God desires our first fruits. God deserves and desires our first fruits. And just like this first battle of probably 30 that Israel was going to engage in in conquering Canaan, God said, I don't want you to take any spoils. I want you to give me everything. Give me the first fruits. And that principle, as we mentioned, is found uh, a consistent principle all through Scripture. Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, God told Israel, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. And so it's this principle that's, that's found over and over again in Scripture is that God says, I want the first fruits. I don't want the leftovers, but I want you to give me the first fruits. God wants the first fruits. He wants the first fruits of our time, doesn't he? First fruits of our time, spending, spending some time with him each day. He wants the first fruits of our talents and our gifts and our abilities. He wants the first fruits of what he has blessed us with, our treasure. God desires and wants the first fruits of our time, our talent, and our treasure. So let's be reminded this morning. If you know Jesus is your Savior, just as God said to, to Joshua there, I've already delivered Jericho. Our victory has already been won. Satan is a defeated foe, and we are on the victor's side if we know Christ as our Savior. And always remember that whatever you're facing, whatever challenge in life, God works in unusual ways. And, and we need to just be patient, and we need to trust and obey. And that God needs to be at the center of everything we do. We need to constantly be seeking His direction. And oftentimes, He gives it to us most of the time through His Word and the principles in His Word. And then God desires and deserves 
the first fruits of our life, our time, our talent, and our treasure. Let's, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for this uh, story. Not a fairy tale story, but a story that uh, happened 3,000 years ago. And thank you for the fact that Joshua and their leaders and the people trusted you. By faith, the walls came down. And even though what they were told to do maybe sounded unusual, Lord, they had the confidence to obey. And Lord, help us to uh, help us to remember that when we go through challenging times. Lord, may we be encouraged this morning that if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, that our ultimate victory has already been won. Lord, that we are more than conquerors through you and through what your Son has done on the cross of Calvary. That even um, when, when death comes for a believer, we have the assurance absent from the body, present with the Lord. We have the assurance of, of victory in Jesus, victory over sin and Satan and the devil. And Lord, help us to always be reminded to not just bring you our our plans and ask you to rubber stamp them. But Lord, help us to seek your will, your direction, your plan for our lives. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would remember to keep you first in our time, our talent, and our treasure because you demand and deserve first place in our lives. Lord, we rejoice in what you've done and in the victory we have through Jesus we give you the thanks. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing uh, Victory in Jesus, an appropriate uh, way to close. Uh, Victory in Jesus, stand with me. We'll sing uh, all of the stanzas. If you want the hymn number, it's 473. Let's sing the three stanzas together. I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory. How He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about His groaning of His precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sin and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. Plunged me to victory Beneath the cleansing flood I heard about His healing Of His cleansing power revealing How He made the lame to walk again And caused the blind to see And then I cried, dear Jesus Come and heal my broken spirit And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, 
my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me victory beneath the cleansing flood. We'll sing the third stanza when we get to the chorus. We'll sing it a cappella. All right. Heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. About the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him. And all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Lord, we are so grateful. So grateful for uh, the victory that we can have in Jesus. And Lord, as we look around the, the world in which we live in and the chaos and and the, Lord, the discouragement, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to always uh, remember and thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, help us to remember that we're strangers and pilgrims simply passing through this earth and that someday you have a, a home waiting for us. Someday we will spend eternity with you forever and ever in a place called heaven where there's no more sin, there's no more sickness, there's no more sorrow, there's no more death. There's no more need for the sun or the moon because the the glory of God illuminates it. Lord, thank you for the victory that we have in him. Lord, may we share the news, the good news, the gospel with those that need to um, appropriate this truth and share in the victory with us. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.